Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 13, The Age of Alexander, To the Strongest. In our last episode, we covered the Macedonian invasion of India, located in the modern-day Punjab. The fighting was brutal and costly, and although victory over King Poros in the Battle of the Hydaspes solidified Alexander's grasp over the region, the army had put its foot down and demanded to go home. Reluctantly, Alexander complied with the troops' wishes. But the question is, how to get back home? And once they return home to enjoy the spoils of empire, the question becomes how to rule it. Since settling the affairs of his founded cities Bucephala and Nicaea, Alexander had been awaiting for the arrival of his Greek naval commander Nearchus, a boyhood friend of the king who had previously served as satrap in Asia before being recalled to serve as navarch of the Macedonian fleet that was currently being built upon the banks of the Hydaspes River. Nearchus would later write a memoir about his adventures, which is unfortunately now lost, but would later be extensively used by Arian. The army had assembled about 800 ships, a small number of 30 oared vessels, and the rest were lighter transport craft. The plan was to sail down the Indus River to the Mediterranean Sea, and if you look at a map, you would know this is actually impossible. But it was originally theorized by Alexander that the Indus was the source of the Nile River, apparently on the assumption that both the Nile and the Indus share similar flora and fauna like crocodiles, and they would thus belong to the same body of water. The plan had to be adjusted once the locals explained the system of currents, and they would have to sail down the Hydaspes and the Indus River to the Indian Gulf, which itself joins the Persian Gulf. So, in the autumn of 326, Alexander sacrificed and proceeded to board a ship and inaugurate the journey. The noise of the rowers and extravagant display of the feet must have been rather a shocking sight to the locals, who trailed along in the banks in awe and curiosity. This would be no Disney cruise, however, since the waters would quickly turn treacherous and difficult to navigate thanks to rapids and rocks jutting out of the water. To top it all off, the people of the Malloy located at the meeting point of the Hydaspes and the Ravi River, were planning to engage in heavy resistance. Once on the shore, Alexander divided his forces into three parts, giving two of the positions to Hyphestion and Ptolemy, and he himself would march towards the territory of the Malloy with the most mobile and elite troops, a sort of strike team to shock and terrorize the Indian forces. Having reached the Malloy lands, Alex managed to surprise some of the civilians outside one of their cities with his lightning march. In a similar repeat of his behavior in the Indian campaign, he descended upon a group of non-combatants and cut them down to a man as they fled to the city. Trying in vain to escape, the civilians were then besieged and killed, amounting to some 2,000 people. This pattern repeated with city after city, until one in particular would give him more of a formidable challenge. An army of Malloy warriors attempted to delay Alexander's progress, but were pushed back to hole up in the strongest city of the region. Alexander, joined by his commander Perdiccas, split the army in two and besieged the town. Within the day, they broke through the outer walls and brought ladders up to reach the inner citadel. The Basileos, perhaps believing some of his soldiers to be slacking on account of cowardice, snatched a ladder and began to ascend to the top followed by a few bodyguards. Reaching the rampart, he climbed onto the battlement and cut down the enemy's station along the wall. His troops, 
shamed and anxious on account of the carrying safety, began to scramble up the ladder, but it buckled and snapped under their weight. Having leapt off the battlement into the city, the king was now surrounded by a swarm of angry Malloy. He fought them off, killing many of them in hand-to-hand combat, and even beheaded the leader of the Malloy in the melee. One of the three bodyguards who chased after the king was hit in the face with an arrow, and the others two still had not reached Alex. In the middle of all this chaos, an Indian archer shot his arrow and hit his mark. Alexander was pierced through his breastplate into his chest, a loud hiss noise, and a spurt of blood shot out, a clear sign of a punctured lung, and he collapsed on top of his shield. Pucestus and Leonatus, the remaining bodyguards, began to protect the Basileos with their bodies, and also were hideously wounded. In an absolute panic, the Macedonian soldiers had scaled the walls in order to protect Alex, but upon seeing his body laying among the carnage, fear turned to uncontrollable rage. They proceeded to kill every man, woman, and child in the city, and bore their king above their heads, laying on top of his shield, back to the camp. The sources are then split on what happened next. Either Perdiccas had lanced the arrow and extracted it from Alexander's chest himself, something that Ptolemy conveniently did not mention for his own benefit, or a Greek doctor named Critodemos did it. But all agree how much peril the king's life was in. Even the most quote-unquote advanced surgery techniques of the time would have had a comparatively low survival rate thanks to poor knowledge of bacteria and sanitation. Yet, the king did not die. Alexander spent the next few months in recovery, and would make an appearance in front of his troops, much to their joy and relief after spending weeks horribly distraught at the thought of their commander departing to the afterlife. His companions scolded him for his reckless behavior, and in his heart, Alexander knew they were right, despite any grumblings. It wouldn't be until the spring of 325 that the journey down the Indus would continue, but he would order Craterus to take a land route with most of the army through the mainland of Ericosia, Zarangia and Carmania to reach the meeting point between the Indian and Persian Gulf. The rest of the journey was relatively uneventful. A few skirmishes here, a monsoon there, but progress was being made as summer bled into autumn. But that all changed when the Macedonians reached the Gedrosian Desert. Previously known to the Achaemenids as Maka, it is today located in southwestern Pakistan in the modern province of, well, forgive me for this pronunciation, Baluchistan. Gedrosia is a desolate and arid wasteland, and historical tradition maintained that the region had defeated the armies of Cyrus the Great and the Assyrian queen Semiramis. Despite the lack of verifiability of these claims, it is communicating how difficult this territory was to cross. So why on earth did Alexander choose to march through this wasteland hellhole instead of proceeding along the coast? Well, this was another one of those contested characterizations of Alex. Arian mentions Pothos, that yearning to gain glory from performing great deeds like the crossing of the desert. Professor A.B. Bosworth maintains that this was a punishment for the army for their refusal to invade further into India, which is kind of hard to believe for me because most of the, most of the armies was currently with Craterus in the inland route. Donald Engels, who wrote a famous work on the logistics of Alexander and the Macedonian army, discusses that despite the rather advanced intelligence system that the king had in his army, they were unable to obtain all the information needed. There were apparently no trustworthy guides for the coastal route, and whatever info he had suggested that it was devoid of any civilization. 
but the inland route was on the way to a populated capital area of Pura, which they could resupply with. Theoretically, the army had 10 days worth of supplies while performing the inland route, and the fleet of Nearchus had four months worth of food for the journey. Nearchus himself asserts that it was the need to resupply the fleet that Alexander pursued the inland route. But this was later difficult because the monsoon winds had prevented the fleet from properly sailing along the Persian Gulf. Thus, any communication or coordination was effectively destroyed. The crossing was disastrous, to say the least. Some of the food that was supposed to be sent to Nearchus was stolen and plundered by a group of starving troops, and most of the pack animals were slaughtered for food. Alexander had good reason to punish these troops, but probably realized how grievous the situation was and decided to let it slip from his notice. Ironically, when the rain did come, it resulted in a flash flood in the camp, killing many women and children camp followers. When presented with sources of food and water, the poor souls greedily drank or ate themselves to death. But in the moment of humanity, the king was approached by a scout with a helmet full of water and was asked to drink from it. Alexander thanked him, but then took the helmet and poured the water onto the ground, claiming that he wouldn't drink before his men, and the army was emboldened by the king's gesture of solidarity. But by the time they had left the Gadrosian desert, a journey taking 60 days to cross approximately a thousand miles, the army, and especially the camp followers, had been heavily hit by the challenges of the journey. Though Alexander had split the army between himself and Craterus, he probably lost at least 10,000 troops out of the 30,000 that followed him in. It's difficult to ex exactly say what constituted the army, as in soldiers, versus the camp followers who trailed along. And 30,000 is an estimate between several scholars' opinions, ranging between 10 to 60,000. Plutarch says that of, out of the entire following, there was a survival rate of only 25%. But we can assume this was almost certainly that of the women and children versus the soldiers. Still, it must have been incredibly demoralizing and depressing. So he had made it back to Persia in the early spring of 324. Alexander had been away for over three years, and now had begun to take his duties as imperial ruler with more scrutiny, as it appeared that administration needed some work. The king had received reports that the satrap of India, a man named Philip had been murdered by his mercenary subordinates. There were also grievances by the Persian peoples of the conduct of Macedonian garrisons in the area of Medea, and Alexander responded by having many of these offenders executed to prevent further abuse. He had a Medean named Bariaxes executed for attempting to start a rebellion, and the local satrap Oryxenes was executed for his crimes committed against the Persian peoples. This quote-unquote revamping of his administrative staff, though revamping can be a light word for torture and execution, was not necessarily a massive purge of his staff out of a delusional paranoia or using these as a scapegoat to redirect blame and anger for the disaster in Gedrosia. But it is indicative that Alexander was now definitely concerned about consolidating his rule before he was going to pursue any further conquests. But to fuel the empire's inner workings, and most of all to pay his troops for several years' worth of back service, he ordered the production of coin money. Lots of coin money. Alexander's conquests generated an insane amount of wealth and booty, but it had not been very well managed, 
especially by a particularly irascible treasurer named Harpalus, who embezzled and ran off with several thousands of talents. More on him later. To give a brief look at what would otherwise be a long episode about the ancient economy, much of the wealth of Persia in the form of tribute had remained uncirculated and stockpiled as silver bars or talents. To pay for all of his expenses, Alexander unleashed a vast monetization project, turning a fair amount of this silver and gold bullion into coinage that flowed from the two dozen different mints across the empire. Numismatic Frank Lee Holt has recently published a work entitled The Treasure of Alexander, which gives a remarkable assessment on the money gained by Alexander's conquests and its finances. In it, he points out that previous estimations on how much Persian wealth was sequestered and not in circulation is rather overstated, but the coin amount probably numbered some 24 million gold coins and 126 million silver coins. But most of the bullion remained untouched well into the successor period after Alexander's death. It is during this time that Alexander had attempted to solidify the connections between himself and the Persian locale, with mixed success. Whether out of genuine respect or as merely a political move, Alexander made a visit to the tomb of the legendary founder of the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great. The tomb was normally a beautiful sight, but much to the king's disgust, it had been plundered, either by a prominent Macedonian who was later executed, or by some random robbers. The tomb was ordered to be repaired to the nearest detail, and to preserve the body of Cyrus as best they could. And one of the great events of his last two years was what we call the Wedding of Susa. In the spring of 324, Alexander and roughly 80 of his officers were given a mass wedding ceremony to noble Persian wives, along with 10,000 other Macedonian Asian couples who were to be legally recognized and were to receive dowries. Alexander himself would marry Barsini, the daughter of Darius III. This ceremony has been held as the ultimate culmination in the idea of Macedonian-Persian fusion, and in scholar W.W. W. Tarn's view, a symbol of Alexander's grand plan for, quote, the brotherhood of mankind, an almost utopian viewpoint which had Alexander go beyond race and origin to live in a peaceful society. This view, especially after the Second World War, has been largely thrown out. It is perhaps better to understand the practicality of Alexander's politics. Alex marrying Barsini, a descendant of both Darius III and Artaxerxes II, would strengthen the claims of himself as a Persian ruler. The officers Ptolemy, Craterus, Nearchus, Seleucus, Eumenes, and Perdiccas, men who had all made themselves extremely valuable and loyal to Alexander, especially during the Indian campaign, were all given Persian noble wives. Perhaps this was a reward, but also a way to promote obedience by the Persian elite whose daughters and sisters were all married to the inner circle of the highest part of the Macedonian hierarchy. Hyphestion, being the closest confidant of the king, would marry a sister of Barsini, thus their children would be considered part of the royal line. By doing this, he managed to garner greater Persian acceptance, and tried to install loyal officers as the bedrock of his new nobility. This would have varying degrees of success, as Seleucus would be the only main successor to remain loyal to his Bactrian wife, Apame, for the rest of his life. It seems that this gesture of solidarity with the Persians did not particularly please the Macedonian rank and file. In the bargaining attempt, Alexander offered to clear all the debts of his men accumulated over the campaign, but this only made them suspicious, 
since they assumed that the offer was a test in order to see if they were using their pay properly. This hesitation was later quashed when Alexander offered to have them be paid anonymously, summing to a grand total of 20,000 talents to cover all the debt. Now, whatever goodwill this gesture gained was quickly lost later in 324 at the city of Opus. Here, Alexander had assembled his troops and made a proclamation that all the veterans who were of old age or unfit for service would be relieved of duty and be sent home with generous bonuses. This did not go over as well as Alexander expected, and the Macedonians began to cry out that all of them should be sent home and then mocked the king that he should campaign with his, quote, father, referring to Zeus. Tensions had been high already, and the recent induction of 30,000 epigonoi, Persian boys given Greek language and education in order to train them in the Macedonian arms, did not help but make some of the soldiers feel like they were being replaced. Furious at this insolence, Alexander arrested and executed 13 of the mutiny's ringleaders. In his speech, the king made an appeal to the struggles of the Macedonians they had, that they had faced, specifically recalling the deeds of his father, Philip, who turned them from mere barbaric sheep herders to the enlightened hegemon of Greece. Alex also pointed that it was under his rulership that the Macedonians had become the rulers of the greatest empires ever known. And this was done out of a love of his people, not for himself. Then he recalled the dozens of wounds he received on campaign as a testament to his bravery. For dramatic flair, he then ended the speech, telling the Macedonians to go home and speak with pride on how they left their king in enemy lands. Turning around, he headed for his tent and then sulked for three days. Upon the third day, he came out and distributed commands and honors to the Persians in his court offering Persian rules in the battalions normally reserved for the Macedonians. At this last point, the Macedonian troops could take this indignity no further, and begged the king to take them back. Moved by his soldiers' gestures, he reconciled with them, and accorded them their due honors, awarding them a peace party with tons of booze and food. The speech, while not 100% accurate, does probably reflect the meat of Alexander's arguments. Appealing to Philip's memory would hit an emotional soft spot for the army and simultaneously reaffirmed Alexander's true parentage. Alexander also sought to address the concerns regarding the nature of the Macedonian monarchy and thus emphasized his devotion to Macedon, not of a world empire. This was all rather untrue since Alexander had certainly sought to pursue self-glory many times and definitely the monarchy was moving from a strictly Macedonian one to more of an imperial one and the king was effectively dodging any questions to do with this latter point. It was also around this time that two events shook Alexander's kingship. The first was the removal of Antipater from the position of regent stand-in in Macedon. Antipater and Alex's mother, Olympias, had been at odds for years, but it is really unknown why this would occur. What is known that in 323, Antipater sent his son Cassander to the court of Babylon, in place of himself when ordered to come. Now, if Alex really meant any harm, I suppose there would be far more hesitation on Antipater's part to let his son come over. Cassander would be a rather difficult figure, even earning the ire of Alexander to the point of the latter for smacking him for disobedience. But Cassander will be a major player in the wars of the Diodohoi upcoming. The second and far more tragic event involved Hyphestion. 
Inekbatna, the Chiliarch, had fallen gravely ill with fever and died after seven days. To say that Alexander was subset is to put it mildly. The king had flung himself across his friend's body, crying hysterically, and there are even reports of Alexander crucifying the doctor for failing to heal him and raising the temple of Asclepios. But this even seems a bit much. Still, Alexander was inconsolable for seven days, and made plans for a lavish funeral for his departed friend. Despite these setbacks, what were Alexander's next plans? Maintenance of the empire's administration is now off the list, but Alexander, ever the warrior king, would not rest on his laurels. The first order of business was to conquer the lands of Arabia, possibly in order to get enhanced access to the Persian Gulf and thereby increase contact with India. This would also provide an effective launching point for the invasion of the Carthaginian Empire, a Phoenician colony turned economic superpower who resided in modern-day Tunisia. There were also plans, according to Plutarch, of a phenomenal tomb to be constructed for Hyphestion amounting to some 10,000 talents. Now, this tomb may have been built based upon recent excavations in Amphipolis, but it's currently up to debate. There were also a number of public works projects, canals and dams being built in order to better facilitate communication and travel around the empire, also for the benefit of military purposes, but, you know, Alexander didn't want to admit that and in conjunction with geographical expeditions to better understand the topography and waterways of the regions under his control. But it seems that fate would intervene on the king's plans. In the spring of 323, Alexander is supposed to have been visited by a number of omens and portents. A gust of wind dashing the royal diadem off his head, ravens dropping dead in front of the king, and Alexander apparently defied some sort of prophecy which warned him not to enter the city of Babylon through the western entrance. Well, these all seem rather superfluous, given the typical superstitious nonsense of the time. Everything should be fine, right? Well, no, things would not be fine. The Ephemerides, the so-called royal journals, were a series of reports supposedly penned by the Greek secretary Eumenes, covering the daily activities of the king. Now, both Arian and Plutarch had access to these, but both report differently on how the next events occurred, indicating that there may have been different versions floating around at the time. The general story is that in June, Alexander, as per his normal routine, attended the drinking party well into the night. On his way home, he ran to a companion named Medios and decided to head to Medios's place to drink some more. According to Diodorus, a sharp pain in his stomach was felt after taking a particular drought of alcohol. By the next day, he had entered into a light fever, but continued to try and perform his kingly duties. Each day, he became progressively worse and worse, and upon the seventh or eighth day, he lost the ability to walk, and then lost the ability to speak. The king had been brought up to the Macedonian army, who all walked beside his bedside in grief and trepidation. Alexander could do nothing but merely greet them with his eyes and a slight tilt of his head in recognition. He knew that the end was near. The last days of Alexander have been subject to intensive scrutiny by scholars both ancient and modern. A common intellectual exercise for many scientists and tinfoil hat historians has been to determine what, or maybe who, was killing the young king. One of the theories presented is death by poison. In this, Alexander was victim of a conspiracy. The now deposed Antipater, 
fearing for his and his son Cassander's safety, had supplied a drug in order to have the king killed. The evidence for this is the symptom of a sudden sharp pain in the abdomen upon drinking the wine at Medios' house, and a hint of foul play is reinforced by the fact that the wine-bearer of Medios was Aeolas, a son of Antipater. Further evidence is suggested that apparently soon after the death of Alexander, an Athenian orator named Hyperides would propose that Aeolus receive state honors for his duties. And after his death, Olympias ordered Aeolus' remains to be exhumed and desecrated for allegedly murdering her son. Now, the second tradition, one I ascribe far more to, is that the king died of natural causes. In the ancient world, life could be snuffed out in a shockingly short period of time by the ravages of disease and infection, even for those who were seemingly fit and healthy. Occasionally, we often interpret the fickle nature of fortune as evidence of a grand conspiracy. A common example of this is the Empress Livia, aka Julia Augusta, who has been accused of killing several of Emperor Augustus's heirs, when in all reality it probably was just bad luck. Alexander's constitution had certainly been tested while on campaign. Attacks from dysentery and various other illnesses had left him close to death before, and his physical wounds from battle were almost too numerous to count, ranging from various head injuries to a nearly fatal chest wound at the city of the Malloy. Alexander had an arrow embedded deep into his chest and lung, and must have lost an extraordinarily amount of blood. It wouldn't be outlandish to say that his health must have taken a heavy toll over ten years of constant warfare and campaigning, and thus would be an easy target for infectious diseases. The number one suspect is malaria, an illness caused by a parasite of the genus Plasmodium. Plasmodium is carried by the female Anopheles mosquito, who takes a blood meal and then infects the unlucky victim. Once the Plasmodia enter the bloodstream, they are carried to the liver, where they mature and become schizonts. Schizonts then erupt and then re-enter circulation and infect red blood cells. These infected erythrocytes burst in cycles, causing intermittent periods of intense chills, fever, and general malaise that lasts over a period of several days to weeks. Malaria has an incubation period of up to two weeks after the initial blood feed, and malaria is endemic in the region of Babylon. It should be noted that the prophecy I mentioned before, where Alexander entered the western gate of Babylon, was home to a marshy swamp, and it would be a fertile breeding ground for mosquito larvae, and the incubation period would match the period of the time between this event and Alexander's initial fevers. Malaria is considered one of the most deadly diseases in all of human history, and continues to kill hundreds of thousands of people each year, even after the discovery of drugs like quinine. The other big candidate is typhoid fever, a bacterial infection from drinking or eating foodstuffs that is contaminated with the bacteria Salmonella typhi via human waste. Typhoid fever results in a steadily increasing fever over a period of several weeks, resulting in dehydration, diarrhea, and sometimes abdominal perforation and hemorrhaging. In some respects, the cause of death doesn't matter. By the final morning, a date fixed at June 11, 323 BC, Alexander III of Macedon, soon to be known as Alexandros Megas, or Alexander the Great, would die after reigning for 12 years and 8 months. He was only 32 years old. The empire that Alexander had conquered was now without a ruler. Ranging from the modern-day Bulgaria to the Punjab, covering 5.2 million square miles, 
the young king had become the greatest conqueror in world history up to this point. A feat unmatched. In terms of his character, Alexander was a fiery and oftentimes reckless soul. His anger would prompt him to take the lives of those who insulted him or his honor, or those who would dare cross him. Enormously arrogant from confidence at best, barely restrained narcissism at worst. But these faults are tempered by Alexander's more positive traits. His chivalrous behavior when it came to prisoners of war and the treatment of the royal family of Darius III, whatever the political usefulness notwithstanding. He was extremely generous to friend and sometimes even foe, showing a remarkable clemency towards peoples who had been seen to show their true quality. Often witty and charismatic, he commanded the loyalty of his men to the ends of the earth, and even the mutinies at the Baeus River and the city of Opus were just essentially sit-down strikes. I will admit, I tend to lionize Alexander a bit. I have tried to give a more rounded viewpoint over the last nine episodes or so, so please forgive me if I come across as too apologetic. But the most immediate consequences of Alexander's conquest was the opening up of Asia to the Hellenic peoples. Colonists, merchants, kings, mercenaries, philosophers, and artists would all stream across the former Persian Empire in what would now be known as the Hellenistic world. Alexander died without an heir to pass on the throne to. But one anecdotal story tells us this. On his deathbed, the officers begged Alexander for him to declare who would lead the empire. The king knew that the body of generals and companions he had assembled over the last several years were all hungry for power and wealth. Perhaps out of dehydration and delirium, or merely out of spite, Alexander refused to name anybody in particular. Instead, he pulled off his signet ring and weakly uttered, Toi Kratisto. The men who surrounded his deathbed, many of whom would become kings and warlords, knew that the stage had been set. These men, soon to be known as the Diadochoi, or the successors, would engage in one of the greatest funeral games in world history. The phrase, toi kratisto, roughly translates to the strongest. And so ends our nine-episode series on Alexander the Great. It's been fun working on this for the past few months, and I hope you've been enjoying it along as well. The schedule for the show lineup will be covering the wars of the Diadohoi. Though I'm unsure how many episodes it will take, it shouldn't be as long as the series on Alexander, which is a bit odd because the amount of time that the wars of the Diadohoi cover is far greater than Alexander's life. Anyways, from there, I have to decide whether I will jump into discussing the Hellenistic kingdoms individually, or will I try to do special topic episodes. Obviously, the big three are the Antigone Macedon, the Seleucid Empire, and Ptolemaic Egypt, but I also wanted to cover several smaller topics. I'd love to talk about the wars of Pyrrhus, the Indo-Greeks, the Greco-Bactrians, and maybe even do an entire episode on the Mauryan Empire of India, or I'd like to do a discussion on the wonder weapons of the ancient world, but that's in the far future. The present compels me to get working on the next series, and the first episode will be released in the next few weeks or so. If you love what you've been hearing, please subscribe to me on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you want to see the show grow, please leave a 5-star review on iTunes, or you can give me feedback by email or Twitter. All the links will be provided in the podcast description, and my sources will be put there as well. So, until next time, 
You've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>